Every school child is now taught the story of Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott, which started off the modern civil rights movement. But attorney Fred Gray, who was 24 when he represented Ms. Parks, knew the real story behind this historic event. We had an understanding that at some point the two of us was going to tell the rest of the story together. But I realized some years before Ms. Parks' death that her health, both physically and mentally, was of such that she wouldn't be able to do it. And if the story would be told, I would have to tell it. When we return, Mr. Gray will tell us about how he decided to become an attorney. This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. was inclined initially to be, I was not one of these persons who always wanted to be a lawyer. In the late 40s and early 50s, when I was a teenager and above, growing up in segregated Alabama, and I was born in Montgomery, there were very few professions that African-American young men could think about, and they were basically two. One was a preacher, and the other was a teacher. And, of course, both of those were on a segregated basis. So I decided I would be both. I went while I was in high school to our church school up in Nashville to learn how to be a preacher. When I finished high school, I came back to Montgomery to go to Alabama State, which was the historical black college in Montgomery, to learn how to be a teacher. I lived on the west side of town. Alabama State was on the east side. I used the public school system. So many of our people mistreated on the buses. I realized everything was completely segregated. And I made a secret commitment that I was going to finish college, go to somebody's law school, not even apply to the University of Alabama because I knew I would not be accepted, finish law school, come back to Alabama, take the bar exam, pass it, and destroy everything segregated I could find. That was my secret commitment. One part of the story about the Montgomery bus boycott, which it takes up a good deal of the book, that I did not know about was the story of Claudette Colvin. Yes. Um, and she actually was one of your clients. Is that correct? As a matter of fact, Claudette was really my first civil rights client because I later represented Rosa Parks, Dr. Martin Luther King, and a lot of people in the civil rights movement. But Claudette Calvin really was the very first one, and that was in March of 1954, 1955, uh, nine months before Mrs. Parks did what she did on December 1st, 1955. The story is pretty remarkable. She was only 15 years old, and she said that she uh, had been at her school, which was, of course, segregated, and they were talking about Black History Month. Um, And then she went onto the bus and was told to stand up and let a white person sit down. Uh, That's a part of it. Of course, uh, Claudette Carvin also had been attending some of Mrs. Rosa Parks' youth meetings of the NAACP. And, of course, she had a civics teacher at Booker, Washington, who, when they had been talking about civil rights and the 14th, 15th, and uh, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, but 
that day she sat in a seat that she had sat in before. It was not one of the traditionally seats that was set aside for whites that blacks never sat in. But on this particular day, there were more white people on the bus than usual. And she was asked to get up and give her seat to a white person. She refused and was arrested. She literally was drug off the bus. And uh, her parents contacted Mr. E.D. Nixon, who really was Mr. Civil Rights in Montgomery. And he contacted me and asked me if I would represent Claudette, and I did. I went over and talked with her and her parents, and she told me what had happened. And the juvenile court of Montgomery County had charged her with being a delinquent. Because Claudette wasn't a delinquent, what they were seeking to do was to enforce the segregation laws. And I raised that issue before Judge Hill, who was the judge, because he ruled against me and declared her to be a delinquent and placed her on unsupervised probation. But the people who later came to Mrs. Pond's rescue, which included E.D. Nixon and a lady at Alabama State, Joanne Robinson, who had had a bad experience on the bus several years before Claudette and myself, came to Claudette Carvin's rescue and threatened to have a bus boycott, but we were talked out of it at that time. But it did serve as an incentive for us to be ready whenever the next opportunity presented itself. Now, I grew up in the 1980s going to primary school, and uh, the story that they taught us, uh, and this was Illinois, was that Rosa Parks had had a very long day working as a seamstress, and she was sitting in a seat that uh, was not traditionally, you know, for the white people anyway, but she was told to get up and move by a white man uh, and the bus driver, and in that moment decided she'd had enough. In your book, you really shed some light on what had actually occurred in the run-up to that moment. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yes, <clears throat> and of course, in my first edition, I talked a little bit about Rosa Parks and what had taken place, but not all of it. And Mrs. Parks, if you go back and read all of her books, she talks about a part of it, but she didn't tell the whole story. We had an understanding that at some point the two of us was going to tell the rest of the story together. But I realized some years before Miss Park's death that her health, both physically and mentally, was of such that she wouldn't be able to do it. And if the story would be told, I would have to tell it. So Mrs. Parks, while what was said by both of us were correct to the as far as it went, Mrs. Parks was really a person deeply involved in the civil rights movement. Not only was she involved in it as secretary of the Montgomery branch and as the youth director of the Montgomery branch, but her husband was also and had given some support to the Scottsville boys, and that was some seven young men who were arrested and alleged with raping two white girls on the train in North Alabama. And it ended up 
eventually they were uh, they were convicted, served a lot of time. They later found out that the young men were not uh, had not done anything wrong, and they were later pardoned. And even this past year, the Alabama legislature, even though all of them were dead, then passed uh, a resolution exonerating them. Uh, so her husband was involved in the movement. She was deeply concerned about Claudette's case. And from the time I opened my office until December the 1st when she was arrested, almost every day for five days a week, we would have lunch. She would walk from her store where she worked to my office a block and a half. We talked about buses. We talked about youth. We talked about improving situations. And we talked about what a person should do in the event they were ever asked to get up to give their seat. She was thoroughly prepared that if the opportunity presented itself, that uh, she would certainly uh, know what to do, do it appropriately, so that we would be able to have a very good test case. And that's what happened. Of course, we did talk on the day of her arrest. She knew I was going to be out of town that afternoon. But as I set forth in the revised edition, I was sure that if anything were to happen to Ms. Parks, I knew E.D. Nixon was in town. He would be able to get her out of jail because I didn't want her to stay in. Uh, so when that opportunity presented itself, she did exactly what we had uh, talked about she was not sitting in one of the traditionally reserved seats for whites. She did not in any way resist arrest. She simply let them know that she was not going to get up, and the rest is history. And even though she did that, it was not the case of the city of Montgomery versus Rosa Parks that desegregated the buses in Montgomery. It was the case of Browder versus Gale. And in that federal suit that I filed, Claudette Carving was also named as one of the plaintiffs in the case. So while she may not have received the notoriety that Mrs. Parks received, she, as much as Mrs. Uh, Browder, was a litigant, she and her parents, in the case that ended the bus boycott and desegregated the buses and started the civil rights movement and was very effective in it, just as Mrs. Parks was. And I've had a, a real good career. I've filed lawsuits that desegregated all of the educational institutions, and it's set out in this book. As a matter of fact, this year is the 50th anniversary of the desegregation of schools in the state of Alabama. The University of Alabama just had an event uh, a few weeks ago, and we filed the case for Vivian Malone and David Hood that integrated that institution. Franklin, uh, we filed a case for him, Harold Franklin, against Auburn University. It was filed in 63 to become effective in January of 64, that desegregated Auburn University. Then I filed later elementary and school cases 
that uh, desegregated uh, in one of the cases where Judge Wallace decided, not Judge Wallace, but uh, he was Governor Wallace then. He had been a judge earlier. To close the school here in Macon County, and I concluded that if he could close one school, then we could ask the court in one lawsuit to desegregate all of the schools in the state of Alabama under the control of the State Board of Education, the state superintendent, and they did. So those cases came up, and uh, we've had voting rights case when the voting uh, march to Montgomery, the Selma to Montgomery march, when they were beaten back, back on bloody Sunday. They called me, and I went across the bridge after that, and on the next day before the close of day, I'd file a case of uh, Williams versus Wallace to make the state of Alabama protect the marches, which later resulted in the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Now, you and I are talking on July 16th. It has been now about three weeks since the Supreme Court just released the opinion on a case about the Voting Rights Act. What is your opinion of the Supreme Court's latest ruling on the Voting Rights Act? Well, I think it was a very sad day for the court. I went back and looked at all the cases that I have handled, from Browder versus Gale forward. And the state of Alabama has never done anything more than what the court has ordered them to do. And if the court had not ordered it to be done, we would still have segregation all over the state. And at that time, we had to file all these lawsuits to do it. With the Voting Rights Act shifting the responsibility so that states, if they pass laws and if they are in the covered areas, uh, affected the right to vote, then they had to get it pre-cleared. So that meant that we would no longer have to, as individuals, be exposed to that. The federal government would take on that responsibility, and it worked well. However, we hope that Congress will act expeditiously and uh, satisfy the criteria that the court has set out. They did it before in 65. They've done it several times since that time, and there's no logical reason why it shouldn't be done again now, because if not, our legislators in Alabama and several, I can talk about Alabama because I've, I've lived through it. It will be a tremendous setback the civil rights in this country. But we'll have to continue to fight and continue to do everything we can so that uh, justice will ultimately be accomplished. Speaking of continuing to do everything we can, do you have any advice for young lawyers who want to get into civil rights cases? Uh, well, I, I say that young lawyers need to be concerned about the protection of equal rights. I became a lawyer because I saw problems existing in Montgomery, Alabama, and while there were persons like E.D. Nixon who was there attempting to address those problems, I felt 
that I needed to try to do something to change things. Nobody told me what to do. Nobody told me how to do it. I decided that to become a lawyer could be one way of doing it. And with a lot of help along the way, I think I have been able to make a contribution toward changing the landscape of this country from a completely segregated uh, situation to one now at least where we are on our way toward equal justice, but we haven't gotten there yet. So what I said to these young lawyers is uh, don't be too concerned about how much money you're going to make or how much prestige you're going to have. I never thought about money, never thought about prestige. I thought about there were people out there who needed help. And when I was 126 president of the Alabama State Bar Association, the first one of color, I was determined to use as my motto that year, lawyers render service, service to their clients, to the profession, and to the community. Then the next president of the bar, Bill Clark, came and got the state of Alabama to adopt as a motto lawyers render service. So if they think and conclude that lawyers do render service, find your nick, see evil that's existing and there's plenty of it out there, and do what you can to correct it. And if you try, you'll be surprised at the help that you'll get along the way. Mr. Gray, it was an honor to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity of talking with you today. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.